Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. When shorts were short only concerns itself with what was actually a very narrow window in football history when teams wore, well, short shorts. The podcast will only cover football from 1954 when Umbro made their first England kit with shorter shorts, a design that was widespread within English football by the mid-50s, to 1992 when short shorts were all but finished as Umbro's baggy shorts for Tottenham's new kit ahead of the 91 FA Cup final quickly caught on. I'm Daniel Ruiz-Tyson. This is when shorts were short. If the shorts weren't short, we don't talk about it. This week's guest is journalist and author Richard Sydenham, whose book Ticket to the Moon, Aston Villa, The Rise and Fall of a European Champion, details the steady rise of Aston Villa after their return to the old First Division under Ron Saunders in 1975 and the improbable success that followed Champions of England in 81 and of Europe a year later, by which time Ron Saunders had resigned in dramatic fashion. It's largely the story of the enmity between Doug Ellis at the club for much of Saunders's time and Saunders and how the club's failure to recover from Saunders's shock resignation in early 82 led ultimately to their dramatic relegation just five years after lifting the European Cup. With access to boardroom minutes, Ticket to the Moon is an impressively detailed account of two decades of football history at Aston Villa. Just to say here very quickly, some important show news at the end of the interview. So if you're a fan of this podcast, have a listen, because I outline the next step for this podcast in terms of a way forward in the coming months. But first, this is Richard Sydenham. The two chief protagonists in the book are Doug Ellis and Ron Saunders. Give us a a thumbnail sketch of their personalities and how they worked together at the start and how that changed over the years. Doug Ellis was um, obviously chairman of the club in 74 when uh, Ron Saunders came in. And Doug, as he remained throughout his time as chairman at the Villa, was very happy to be in the uh, media spotlight, always liked everybody to know what good things was going on at Aston Villa. If he was being pro-Doug, you were saying that he was a great PR mouthpiece for the club. But I guess um, the the more anti-Doug people would say he was egotistical and built his own importance up a bit too much. Whereas Ron was keen to do his work behind the scenes. He wasn't a, a massive um, giver of interesting quotes to the media which is probably why Villa wasn't in the newspapers as much as maybe they should have been in later years because Ron was just happy to let his players do the talking for him but in terms of working together maybe that worked for them because whereas Doug Ellis once had an informal chat with Brian Clough for that job 
even Doug said to Cloughy that he said, I don't think the two of us can work together because they were both clearly, you know, the same kind of ilk and wanting to be the main man at the club. But maybe, although Doug and Ron Saunders were totally different characters, it maybe might have helped in a way that they were able to go about their jobs and not really interfere too much. Doug always interfered when he, when he you know, when he wanted to, but they found a way of uh, of working together. Was the book more challenging for you to write because it seems to run counter to the view held by many Villa fans in that you argue Ellis isn't as responsible for Villa's mid-80s fall as maybe the average Villa supporter would have you believe? Well, my initial motivation for writing the book was, obviously, I'm a Villa supporter, so I know a lot of what went on, but I think there's also a lot of what should we say, mistruths or mysteries about how can a club go from seventh in the league to winning the league and then from winning the league, winning the European Cup to being relegated five years later. It was a massive rise and fall journey. So I just wanted to know, I mean, everyone had their own opinion, but I wanted a lot more factual evidence of how that can happen. Like I've said before, um, fans will be probably more pro-Ron Saunders and more anti-Doug Ellis. I wasn't really one way or the other. I was I was a young kid at the time in those early 80s. So I, I obviously heard all the stories and growing up then, Doug always had a reputation for being a bit tight with his money. But I didn't want an agenda. I didn't want a bias to the book. So I went into the book with, um, let's say, a clean slate of let's hear from everybody. I spoke to about 80 people in total for the book, mostly players, Doug, Ron Saunders' family, Tony Barton's family, other managers, secretaries. Everybody who'd got a, a close view of proceedings I interviewed. I, I think then you can make out the picture yourself from speaking to so many people like that, what really went on. And I think there's pros and cons to, to both of them. You got access as well to secret boardroom minutes from the years covered by your book. How did that come about and did what you uncovered change the book and your own views in any way? I probably got a bit lucky. I only set out to do some research at some club documents and uh, kind of stumbled on these boardroom minutes, I guess you could say. And, and that was more interesting than anything to me. There was a lot of other stuff that I found as well, but it was what was said in boardrooms generally, and it still would be the case today, I guess, that most stuff that gets said in boardrooms is not privy for public consumption. And even all those years later, there was a lot of stories in there that we didn't know. I mean, the fact that Ron Saunders went to the board and said, Trevor Francis wants to leave Birmingham City, can we go for him? And they actually gave him permission to dig a bit deeper. I don't think anybody knew that Villa were trying to take their most you know prized possession from their bitter rivals so that was just one example of the nuggets that were in uh, in those boardroom records but what it did was able to particularly with things like the, the Ron Saunders resignation there's so much innuendo about why he left that the boardroom records actually you can't argue with them because they've been signed off by the, the chairman and the secretary and what was said in that room is down there in black and white. So I think it was the factual accuracy and the authenticity I was looking for was was greatly uh, achieved because of those ballroom minutes. Doug Ellis arrives at Villa in 68. 
by then he's already had a period as a board member at Birmingham. Tell us a bit about how he made his money and how he went from being a, a board member at Birmingham to actually coming to be involved with Villa in 68. He had his own travel business. He was quite uh, an innovator in the travel industry with package charter flights to places like Mallorca. And he became quite wealthy very early. He started a, a travel company in Preston initially, where his, his family was up from up in that sort of northwest area. And then he got posted down into the West Midlands, eventually started his own travel enterprise, became wealthy. While he was doing that, he would have a season ticket at both Villa Park and St Andrews and would go Birmingham one week, Villa the next. But he said he was always more a Villa fan and Blues was just, you know, feeding his football appetite, really. I remember the quote when I was sitting in his, uh, in his dining room when we had a chat before he passed away. I said, what did you learn from that short time you had on the Blues board? And I think the quote was something along the lines of how not to run a football club. It did help him in some ways. And uh, Villa actually in a bit of a state when he came into Villa as well, that the club was in disrepair. There was no money that was in debt. So he and uh, a guy called Pat Matthews really helped to sort them out in 1968 and a few years on from that. You mentioned at the start of this that uh, in the 70s, I think maybe around 74, Ellis had interviewed Brian Clough for the job and that there was probably no way that was going to work because it was two big personalities. But his first manager is actually Tommy Doherty, who keeps them up in the second division. What was the Ellis-Doherty dynamic like? Well, Tommy Doherty was probably quite a perceptive character, and even before Doug developed that reputation that we all came to know as deadly, that Jimmy Greaves, that nickname he gave him years later, I think Tommy Doherty, Saw glimpses of that quite early, and um, I understand that isn't the famous quote about Doug. Doug said to Tommy Doherty, "Don't worry, manager, I'll be right behind you." And Doherty <laughs> said, "No, I want you in front of me where I can see you, you know, because there was no trust there." So, so I think that early Ellis um, reputation was forged quite early. To be fair, they did give Doherty some money. He was quite keen to spend £100,000 on a player quite early just to make a statement. I think that was quite a lot of money in those days. And they brought Bruce Rioch along with his brother. But I think Bruce was the player they really wanted. Chris Nickel, Ray Grade, and eventually they went and got um, John Robson, who just won the league at Derby. So he was quite ambitious quite early on. And although they wouldn't have been the biggest spenders in the country, probably, that you could see there was an early ambition there. Doherty is fired in January 70. Ex-Aston Villa player Vic Crow comes in as manager. Can't stop the club from being relegated to the third division that year. And I know that this is before our time, but as bad as things got in the mid-80s, for the older Villa fan, would relegation to the third division be a lower point than the uh, relegation to the second division in 87 or is the latter bigger simply because of where Villa had been at the start of the 80s? Everybody will have their own opinion but if I had to give my view on it I would say that the most painful time for the Villa fan would have been 87 more than the other time because Villa were not in a good position in those late 60s, 70 time. Uh, Like I said before there was not much money there, the stands were in poor condition, the club wasn't very well run. And it almost felt, I mean, even when Tommy Doherty came in, it felt inevitable they were going to get relegated. 
So it was almost like a breath of fresh air when they dropped into the third tier. Uh, I think they had two years down there and came back. It was almost like people enjoyed winning games most weeks and it kind of breathed fresh impetus into the club. Uh, they even went to the League Cup final, didn't they, against Tottenham in that 1971 year uh, and could easily have won that, even though they were two leagues below Tottenham. So I think a lot of fans from that, it was before my time, but a lot of fans from that generation have got some good memories of that time. But to actually be kings of Europe in 82 and then to be relegated five years later after uh, three or four years of gradual decline, when most fans felt that that was the decade to to build on from that early success was really painful for a lot of Villa fans. The following season, 71-72, Villa win the third division championship with a record 70 points. One thing I that was striking from your book throughout, certainly the 70s, and it starts around 71-72 when Villa beat Liverpool in the 72 FA Youth Cup final, is that there's a whole bunch of kids coming through on a regular basis at that time. Tell us about some of those young players coming through. To be fair to uh, Ellis, one of, one of his initiatives was to build the youth system. <laughs> I guess you could argue if you're being cynical because youth kids don't cost the club any money. But at the same time, they were able to bring through Brian Little was probably the biggest success story. It was, uh, many fans would have him in their all-time Villa eleven. John Gidman didn't make the grade at Liverpool. Shankly sent him a letter home saying he wasn't good enough and he's releasing him. So uh, Vic Crow was happy to pick him up and, and give him a contract. Gidman, like Brian Little, was one of Villa's best players of the whole decade, both won in England Cup. Um, so they would be the two biggest success stories. And to a lesser degree, you've got guys like Jake Finley, who went on to have a, a longer career at Luton in the late 70s, early 80s. He was probably unlucky. He wasn't one of Ron Saunders' favourites. He was a bit of a jack the lad, and I don't think Ron Saunders liked those kind of guys around the group. But they were a bit cocky. He was the goalkeeper in the famous 5-1 win against Liverpool. Finley was another one. Bobby McDonald was another good player, probably underrated at Villa and had to go to um, Coventry and Man City and Oxford to be appreciated years later. Again, a bit like Finlay, was probably a bit of a character who uh, wasn't one of Ron's types. So, so those would be the nucleus of that team that went on to have some success. Around this time, Ellis is working on ramping up the club's profile and there's a, a, a passage in your book, a story completely new to me, Santos come to Villa for a friendly and I think it's right on the day itself there are frantic negotiations between Ellis and, and Pele to mm-hmm. ensure Pele plays and then I think because it's the three-day working week, there's an issue with floodlights. It's how that game goes ahead is, well, it's far from normal. The way Doug told the story was that he was giving Pele, I can believe this, just typical Doug, trying to impress the world's greatest player and he Rolls Royce, or it was probably a Rolls Royce at the time. So he's there in the back of the car and uh, and Pele apparently just turned around and said, sorry, Mr. Chairman, but I can't play in this game. And Doug's nearly had a heart attack. I think there's 50,000 people expected <laughs> at the game. And, and then he said, I, I need... Uh, I think it was 5,000 was the figure. I need 5,000 pounds to play. I guess it looked, sounds like a cynical case of blackmail, but I guess in Pele's defence, Santos was basically um, going around the world 
playing something silly like a hundred games a year. They, they were because Brazil were the team, wasn't they? The, as they still are, I guess, but they were the sexiest team in those late fifties to early seventies, and that they were a bit of a selling point across Europe. So, and I, I guess Pele wasn't getting much out of those deals, and it, this was his way, I guess, of um, just looking after his own interests. You can't blame him for that. So then he, he played in the game eventually. Doug clearly found that money from somewhere. And uh, you're quite right. There was a floodlight failure in that game. And I remember, um, I think it was Ray Graydon telling me the story that he was coming off at half time, and their goalkeeper was moaning about darkness on his side of the pitch. And then Doug Ellis had a moan to the secretary at half time. You know, this is a prestigious game for us. You know, you must put this floodlight issue right. And in the end, they. Um, they, they, because I think the floodlight failure was facing Doug on the Witten stand. So all they did, because they chatted to the electrical expert, and they said, "Well, if we charge up that fourth tower, the whole lot could blow." So without telling Doug, they just basically swapped the light from the two towers. So Doug thought it was all fixed. So he was looking now at the, the the floodlight that was working, but the one behind him was not working. He was happy, but the uh, the Santos players were not too happy about it. But yeah, just another. Another good night in uh, Villa's history in that, that decade. Nick Crow finally goes after a mid-table finish in 73-74, and it's at that point that Ron Saunders arrives. Saunders had just had a chastening period at Manchester City. The um, experienced players take an umbrage at his methods. How does the City experience go on to inform the type of manager that Villa would be getting? It was quite clear that Ron went into Man City and basically wanted to shake up this um, senior player clique in the group. So he he belittled players like Francis Lee, Mike Summerby, Colin Bell, Dennis Law even, Rodney Marsh, I think, was there then as well. So some of these guys, the way is reported to me from several sources, was that Ron was pretty out of order with some of those guys. And I think he called... Franny Lee, Fatty, and you know things like this for a bunch of guys who've been massively successful for the five years before that. So that didn't work for him in the end. Although they got to a League Cup final, he was he was ousted after six months through player power basically. So I think when he turned up at Villa a couple of months later, I think he learned that if I'm going to be successful here, I need the senior players on my side. And you will hear over time that. The likes of Jimmy Rimmer, Ken McNaught, Dennis Mortimer, these guys would be his allies in that great team that ended up winning the league. So I think he learned lessons that, you know, I need to be a bit more um, on the same page as my senior players. And and funnily enough, although he loved to bring the kids through from the uh, reserves and the youth team, he was infamously tough on the young kids at Villa. People like Steve Hunt was given a hard time. He, he got shipped out to uh, New York Cosmos. But even people like Gary Williams, Gary Shaw, Gordon Cowens, they'll all tell you that it was hard on them. But the ones who stayed were clearly the ones who took his advice and they will tell you that Ron made them a better player. But to answer your question, I think that was the main, the major change, though. He, he basically ingratiated himself more with the senior players at Villa. He gets Villa back up to Division 1 in his first season. They win the League Cup, beating his former club, Norwich, in the final. In 1975, there's an incident, and I wonder if this is what really goes on to shape 
the relationship Saunders has with Ellis from here on in. The clash over Saunders signing Frank Caradus from Manchester City without clearing it first with the chairman. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, that was Ron's first signing, um, taking him back from his old club, Man City. Caradus was Ron Saunders' typical player, industrious, hardworking, good midfield player, good engine, very fit. So Ron straight away said, right, I'm going back for him. I think he informed the chairman, right, chairman, I've signed our first player, Frank Caradus, 100,000. And the reply from Doug Ellis was along the lines of, no, Ron, you don't sign players. You recommend players to the board and then we decide if we're going to sign that player. So straight away, there was this um, battle of, of egos and, and authority between the two of them. And that pretty much set up the way it would be between the two while they were together. They, they did end up signing Caridus and Doug Ellis likes to tell the story that it was actually for 90000 So it was his way of saying, I got involved and saved Villa 10 grand, which is typical Doug. But I think there's a cultural uh, issue at play there as well, because to be fair to managers in those days, it wasn't like now where it's all chairman to chairman and directors of football. Managers in that era pretty much picked the phone up to each other and did deals like that. Do you want that player or I don't fancy that player? Do you want him off me? And this kind of thing. So Ron Saunders would have been used to that culture, but because he was dealing with a more hands-on chairman in Doug Ellis, he obviously soon learned, though, that he uh, he needed to be a little bit more diplomatic with his recommendations after that. Although I'm sure, knowing Ron, he wouldn't have been, but that certainly set the tone. Andy Gray arrives from Dundee United in 75. Gray was recommended to Saunders by his old Portsmouth teammate, Tony Barton, who soon comes to, uh, comes to Villa as head scout. Tell us about that relationship between Saunders and Barton. Yeah, you're quite right. That was uh, They met each other at, uh, in Portsmouth. And as we know now, Tony Barton was the manager that won the European Cup in 82, but possibly doesn't get enough credit for a lot of the players he recommended to Villa down the years. He was very low profile, didn't like the media spotlight. So he was happy to just, he went to loads of games every week of the year, uh, scouting players. And I think when I spoke to his son, he reckons the, the only one he really got wrong was Gordon Smith, the old left back, which he wasn't exactly um, terrible. He was just probably not at the level of the likes of Andy Gray, who Villa signed so Ron Saunders, though, really came to value the opinion of Barton and, uh, and the players he, he recommended. Other signings around that time include a 23-year-old Liverpudlian midfielder, Dennis Mortimer. He arrives from Coventry. Gordon Cowans is starting to come through. Around this time as well, Ellis loses the chairmanship to William Dugdale. How did that come about? Well, there was always infighting from pretty much the early 70s when Doug was there. And Doug Dale was a guy who he got along with people better. He was he was a very personal guy who he understood the job Ron Saunders was doing. Alan Smith, who was on the board as well, told me that the board didn't appreciate the way Doug Ellis kept turning up at the training ground. And there was clearly issues at play here where Doug would turn up at the training ground Ron Saunders would phone his mates like Alan Smith or William Dugdale and say, 
Doug Ellis is down here again, keeping an eye on me. Can you please tell him to stay away because, you know, this is our domain. And this by-play was going on already before that. And eventually, um, Doug was ousted. Uh, the Bendals came onto the board around about that time as well, but their power didn't start coming through till more like 78, 79. But Doug Dale was more of a people's person. Certainly, Ron Saunders enjoyed working with him because... He wasn't interested in meddling in the manager's business. Like I said, I think the board as a whole just grew tired of Doug's, uh, let's say, interfering. Some of the players do struggle with Saunders. And some of the players, I was actually surprised because they struck me without knowing anything about them. They struck me as confident and hard enough to be able to deal with that kind of environment. So I was surprised that John Burridge was one who struggled with Saunders. You mentioned, I think, Jake Finley had a difficult time with him. John Gidman never Mm -hmm. saw eye to eye with him. I suppose the biggest surprise was that Brian Little, who was such a brilliant player for Villa in the 70s, that he almost left for Birmingham just to get away from Saunders. That's, you know, that's extraordinary. I think that's a lot of that really is more to do with the psychology of Saunders where, okay, I guess he just didn't fancy some players and, and was trying to get them out. But some players reacted to him better than others. And give you an example, he, he would often say to Brian Little, after Little thought he'd come off having a really good game, he'd say words to the effect that, is that all you can give me? I need you to do more or, you know, that's not good enough. Or And Brian Little was thinking can't believe it, I've just had a great game and, and he wants me to do more and, you know, he can't stand this bloke. Brian Little reacted in a way that, right, I'm going to show Saunders on Saturday and, and then he would go and be man, man of the match, best man on the park because really what Saunders was doing, he was motivating him and, and I guess he was giving him more stick than carrot and Brian Little reacted in the way that he wanted him to. Let's face it, he, he was a mainstay for him until he, his career ended through injury. Um, so that was the type of player that reacted well to Saunders, let's call it kidology. And then you get someone like a Charlie Aitken, who was probably around about 32, 33 when he left Villa. Uh, one of the senior guys who'd been there since 61, I think it was. Clearly, Ron had made his mind up that he wanted a, a more youthful player in that role. It doesn't sound like he treated him particularly well. Charlie Aitken maintains he was still one of the fittest guys in the squad. Yet Ron clearly made his mind up he wanted to move him on and started telling him to train with the youth team and he would train on different parks to the, the first team. And So there was some harsh treatment like that. that he, he wasn't the only one to suffer like that. So he wasn't one to, to be diplomatic about these things. You were either in Saunders' good books or if you, if you weren't, you were kind of cast aside. 76-77, Villa continue moving in the right direction. It's a really good season. They thrash Liverpool 5-1 at Villa Park, as you mentioned earlier, and finish fourth that season, their highest finish for 44 years. How close was that team to winning the league? Really close. When you think of that match against Liverpool, I mean, fans still talk about it now. How many years later? Nearly 50 years on, and it's still seen as a special night. Even Phil Thompson said when I interviewed him, he said I'd look across at Emily News and we we were um, we just didn't know what to do because they battered us. They were quicker than us. They was knocking it around. He said it's the loudest atmosphere he's ever heard ever in his career. So to go from that game when Liverpool ended up being European champions that year, so 
for Villa to beat Liverpool 5-1 at half-time, they were 5-1 up. Uh, to go from that to not winning the league and finishing fourth, sounds like they underachieved, but I believe, I haven't got the, the league table in front of me, but I think it was four points. They were off four or six points, but it was a very small margin. And when I spoke to John Dean, he puts it down to lack of professionalism from the mixture of management and the senior players because their um, away record wasn't very good. I think they lost quite a few games away. I think they only lost one game at home, which was to the local rivals, Birmingham City. Lost too many games away. And he said, if we would have just maybe been a little bit harder to beat and gritted our way to four or five more draws away from home, maybe we could have won that league. That was John Dean's attitude. And and when I spoke to Andy Gray, he agreed and felt that team was definitely good enough to win the league. So it certainly showed the signs of things to come, though, because some of those players obviously did stay around for uh, the eventual league title. They do win a, a second League Cup that season under Saunders. What took my attention from that is that after at the end of that season, uh, captain Chris Nickel, who'd scored the winner, he's moved on. I think Ray Graydon is also moved on. You've got Ken McNaught coming in. Alan Evans arrives. Jimmy Rimmer arrives. This is Saunders just three years into his time at Villa. And one thing I noted is that in the eight years Saunders was there, he built three different teams, which maybe for that period is unusual. Two and eight years would be about average, but he wasn't afraid to break up a winning team. It shows the ruthlessness of Saunders, doesn't it? Particularly that sale that you mentioned of Chris Nickel. I spoke to the secretary of the time, Alan Bennett, and he said that Generally, they back Saunders, whether it was sales or transfers in. And he said, but the one bit of business that the board didn't really like, but still backed him because he was the manager, was Chris Nickel, the sale to Southampton. And it came as a huge surprise to Chris himself. He, he said that uh, he was, I think they were in Spain on an end-of-season um, trip. And next thing you know, Laurie McMenim is out there to meet him. He didn't know anything about it. And eventually he's off to Southampton for the next few years. And like you said, he was captain in that League Cup winning team that season. They just had a great season. So to give you, well, not give away, but to sell your captain after such a good season, it just shows the ruthlessness. I guess you could call it vision from Saunders because he brought in uh, Ken McNaught around that time from Everton after seeing him play well over those three finals in uh, the League Cup for Everton. So he always seemed to be looking one or two steps ahead, Saunders, not just appreciating where they were at the time, but it was, OK, where do I want to be in two or three seasons from now? Even the, the purchase of Dennis Mortimer in 75, he told the secretary who travelled with him that he said, there's my captain. Didn't become captain for another three years, but he already knew in his head one day he's going to be captain of this club. He's probably the most famous captain in Villa's history now. So. So Ron was great for uh, being a bit of a visionary like that. 1977, Andy Gray wins both the PFA Player of the Year and Young Player of the Year awards, but isn't allowed to travel to London by Saunders to pick up his trophies. Was that Saunders maybe worrying Gray might go, you know, that the awards might go to Gray's head and he just wanted to keep him grounded? Possibly. um, Didn't like the... uh, 
the idea of having a star player, if you like. And when you've got a new signing, he's only been there two years then, and a young guy who's not only player of the year, but young player of the year as well. I think the first to do it still only, I believe, three guys, I think Bale and Ronaldo. I'm not sure if anyone else has done it. When you've got a player that special and that young, Saunders would have hated all the media hype around him. And that was probably Saunders' way of just keeping him grounded. In a quiet moment, I think he told a few teammates years later after retirement, he got that one wrong. And I can tell you that Andy Gray never forgave him for it. Even now, when I spoke to him for the book and, and at other times, he's very, very bitter about that, Andy. And who can blame him? Because that's that's a special night in any player's career to win an award like that, it's particularly a, a double award. The TV company couldn't have done anything more to make it easy on Andy and the club. They offered to send a car to his house, pick him up, drive him to the awards. Soon as he gets his awards, drive him back so he doesn't, you know, have a few too many beers with all the other people there. And so there was a lot of uh, efforts to to get Andy down there, but Ron wasn't having it, and uh, yeah, he pretty much got that one wrong. Villa just fall to Barcelona in the 77-78 UEFA Cup quarterfinals. Now, before the second leg at the new Camp, there is what turns out to be the final falling out between Andy Gray and Ron Saunders. What happened? And given that Andy Gray went on to play for another year at Villa or so before moving, was there no chance of that issue being resolved? Andy Gray was struggling with uh, injury around that time, but he was on his way back. And before the trip to the new Camp, Ron, I think it was on a Sunday at the training ground, and the match would probably be the Wednesday, Saunders came in and said to Andy, are you, are you fit to play? And Andy, being very honest, as he always was, said, I'm 90% ready. In other words, 90% is good enough for most managers. When you're the best player in the team, 90% is good. And Saunders went, OK, 90%, so you're not fit to play then, OK. And left him back in England. And they only narrowly lost that match. And Andy Gray felt that you know he could have made the difference, which I think is a fair assumption. But on that plane back, Ron Saunders told a couple of pressmen that Andy Gray had cheated himself and the fans and the club because he didn't want to play the game and that kind of thing, and which was clearly not the way Andy uh, remembered the conversation. Having been told that conversation some weeks later, went in to see the manager and reminded him all the times he'd put his body on the line for him after injections and playing through injuries. He said, to speak about me like that. He said, that's not acceptable. I've lost all respect for you and I can't play for you anymore and I need you to put me on the transfer list. Because Villa was clearly going to expect top dollar for him, it took quite a while for that sale to happen, pretty much about 18 months later. But from that moment, Andy Gray got it in his head. He was leaving. It was just a matter of when. 79 and 80, this period is uh, Saunders rebuilding for the last time. As you say, Andy Gray finally moves on. Finley, Gidman, Gregory, they're all sold. Gordon Smith moves on. Tommy Craig goes. Even young prospects such as John Dean, despite doing well at Villa, he's sold to West Brom. There are arrivals like Kenny Swain. Interesting, he's another attacker like Alan Evans, who's converted successfully to to a, a defender by Saunders. You've got Tony Morley, who becomes an outstanding player for two or three years. He arrives, Des Bremner arrives. So the final pieces are now falling into place for that great side, aren't they? Yeah, I think the the big picture 
of that particular final transition is just all about Ron Saunders' vision. It's magical vision of, of putting... I don't want to take anything away from Tony Barton for the way he identified some of those players, but the fact that Ron had this vision of, like you mentioned, Kenny Swain, the right winger at Chelsea. We lose John Gidman, uh, and, and then Swain replaces him at right back. Uh, Alan Evans, again, comes in as a striker and becomes Ken McNaught's central defensive partner uh, in not too much time after. Uh, and also, the, the sales of um, Gidman and Gray, if you were a Villa fan at the time, you'd be thinking, you're selling Gidman and Gray within a couple of months of each other. Brian Little's going to go to Birmingham City. The only reason that didn't happen was because of a failed a medical. So you'd be thinking, he's trying to sell our three best players, our three big stars. If you were a fan at that time, even though Ron Saunders had a lot of credit in the bank with Villa because of doing quite well, winning two League Cups, you would still have thought, what the hell is he playing at? So to go from that massive transition in only 79, losing those star players, to winning the league a couple of seasons later was remarkable, really, and it showed how Ron had that, uh, that plan. You suggest that one of the motivations for breaking up that squad in 79 seemed to be that Saunders sensed uh, a splinter group in the dressing room that was sympathetic towards Ellis. Going by some of the interviews in the book, there does seem to have been a divide at the club between those loyal to Saunders and those who'd been loyal to Ellis. And uh, John Gidman especially is particularly vocal about some of the players he felt were too close to Saunders. Without that divide, does that team stay together for longer? Possibly. I don't think it's a coincidence that Gray, Gidman and Little were all pro-Ellis and they were the three that were being uh, put up for transfer. Obviously, Gidman and Gray did go. Little was supposed to go. So those three stars were all Ellis fans, let's say. They got along with Ellis. I believe Gregory got along with Ellis better than Saunders as well. He was sold to Brighton, 79. So um, some players would say, oh, no, there wasn't really a click because some players wouldn't have had that problem with being in one camp or the other. Most footballers don't want to be thinking along the lines of those kind of politics. But there was enough players to admit the fact, though, that there were clearly two camps. And it wouldn't have surprised me if Ron Saunders was just trying to get everybody totally following his his uh, gospel and the team he ended up with certainly were all in that camp. Still to come on this week's When Shorts Were Short. When you look around, you know you're champions of England and other teams are signing bigger players than yours. Like you said, I've got boardroom records to show the arguments in the boardroom and uh, Ron Saunders was consistently asking for more money and not getting it. They would say, well, you need to raise money before we can buy anybody. And in the end, out of almost testing the board, he said, OK, then let's put Tony Morley and Gary Shaw up for sale. Ellis has ousted from the board in 79. I think the Bendels are already there by then, aren't they? Yeah. What can you tell us about the Bendels and the way they ran the club? Well, Ronald Bendel was the father. Donald Bendel was the son. Basic dynamic is that Ronald Bendel didn't have a clue about football. He was just a very wealthy accountant. 
and Donald was a huge Villa fan. So it was almost like uh, Ron was Ronald Bendel, that is, was buying Villa's or buying into Villa initially, let's say. It was a bit of a, a rich play thing for his son, Donald, really. They both got on the board very soon. And I think they were always in the background. And it, it seems that Ellis and Donald, sorry, Ronald Bendel were egotistical and almost took on this this power battle of who's going to have the most shares in Villa. Uh, Ronald Bendel kept buying shares at every opportunity. Doug would also, but before you know it, 1979, when there's a lot of politicising in the background, in the boardroom, Ronald Bendel had done very well to get everybody on his side to the point where it was an untenable position in the end for Doug to stay at Aston Villa and he left. But the one good thing he did do was he had he struck a gentleman's agreement with Ronald Bendel that if he ever sold Villa, he had to give Ellis the choice to buy back. So that was obviously the three-year period when Villa had their most successful golden era. Peter Wythe arrives from Newcastle in the summer of 1980. He's already a, a title winner with Forrest. He only arrives for half a million after Saunders' efforts to sign, I think, Mick Ferguson from Coventry for 750,000 fails. I think I'm right when I recall that Wythe is told privately by Saunders that he's the final piece of the jigsaw. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, quite a famous quote now. What's interesting to me was that Peter With, although he'd won the league at Forest, I think he would admit himself, he hadn't really found the home that he that he really wanted to stay for a long period. He was a bit of a journeyman, but like quite a few of those other players you would call, without trying to be disrespectful, there was people you might call journeymen there. Guys who were good players without being great players. There was not many internationals at Villa. With was in the same camp there. He only, I think, won his first England cap a year later. Even Des Bremner and uh, Tony Morley. And I think Des Bremner might have played once or twice for Scotland, for Hibernian back in the day. But there, there were not players that the fans would really have known too much about. So for the fact that people like Bremner, Morley and With became such big integral players so quickly, again, says a lot about Saunders' vision of spotting these players and knowing how they were going to fit into this team we've got. January 81, I think Villa, they've gone into the Christmas period second place. Then they play uh, Liverpool at Villa Park in January. While not as big a win as the 5-1 in 76, in terms of impact, it's uh, it's a far bigger game perhaps. Is that the moment when Villa beat Liverpool 2-0, who were champions at the time? Is that the moment when Villa begin to really believe that the title is on that season? That was certainly the consensus from the players I spoke to. And Colin Gibson told me he remembered being in the, uh, you know, the old-fashioned baths when they would share a bath after a game. And he and he said that Peter With was obviously a senior player who'd won a league before at Forest, and he said that Withy felt that was the time when you know what we can win this league. And just Withy saying that in front of young players like Colin Gibson and some of the other guys even though they were up there anyway and knew they were would be in the title hunt. To hear it from a senior player like that gave them that extra uh, impetus and belief that they, they really, this was their title to go and win. So, yeah, that was certainly um, another uh, moment that, that gave them that impression that they could be the champions. 40 years on, there are still those who, who feel that uh, the Ipswich team who were challenging Villa that season were the stronger team, that Villa 
actually benefited from going out of the cups early that season. But if you actually look at Ipswich's form in the closing stages of the league, they do actually lose seven of their last 10 games. I think that's often forgotten. Do you feel that in terms of that year's title, there is still a question mark about that Villa team, an unfair question mark? Well, it depends which way you look at it. If you look at it in a in a sympathetic way t- towards Ipswich, you would say that I think their ever-present was Russell Osman had played 65 games that season and quite a, probably half a dozen of their players like John Walk, Terry Butcher, Paul Cooper, these guys all played 60 or more games, which is a huge amount of football, isn't it, in one season because they would won the UEFA Cup. So you can't deny the fact they probably would have been fatigued towards the back end of that season because Villa, as you say, went out of the FA Cup and uh, League Cup early on. They weren't in Europe. So their ever-presence played in something like 44 games. So 20-odd games less. You would think they're going to be fresher. But if we take away those excuses and look at it a bit more evenly, you would say that Ipswich bottled it a bit more at the end of that season. To lose so many games at the business end of the season, great teams don't do that. They find a way to win. Ipswich didn't do it, and, and I agree. They they definitely had the bigger names of the Villa. I mean, people like the two Dutchmen, Muren, Tyson, Butcher and Osman in defence. That skill throughout the team. Gates, Brazil, Mariner, Walk, fantastic players. Fullbacks were strong, Burley, Mills. and So there, there are no real weaknesses in that team. But they just couldn't get the job done at the end of the season. So you have to give Villa the, the credit that, you know, when it came down to doing the business, they grinded out those results. When, again, it might have been Colin Gibson that put it quite well. He, he said that maybe when, when both teams were playing well, maybe Ipswich were the better team. But when both teams were not quite at it, Villa still found a way to maybe draw a game when Ipswich might lose it. So maybe there was that bit more inner steel amongst Villa than there was in Ipswich. But ultimately, you can't say a team's lucky over uh, 42 games. Can you? There's a way the champion is the, is the right the right champion. There's no way of being lucky over that kind of course. So Villa win their first title since 1910. There are several things about that summer. First of all, United, there's a vacancy at Old Trafford. Saunders, I think, and McMenemy are the two names linked with that job. Was Saunders tempted? And given the lack of signings by Villa that summer, would he have been right to go? He must have had some kind of temptation. Otherwise, he wouldn't have had, um, I think he had two conversations with Martin Edwards, the Man United chairman. So there must have been some interest. But the truth is, he never wanted to leave Villa. He loved that job. He loved that team that he built. It took him the uh, best part of a decade to find that uh, formula to win the league. He really didn't want to walk away from that. But he was frustrated at the lack of money he was getting for the transfer market. So I imagine it was almost a curiosity thing to speak to Man United because they did tell him what his transfer kitty was. I don't know the exact figure, but the fact they went and bought Brian Robson for 1.5 million not long after when, when they gave Big Ron the job shows you the kind of money they had to spend. Ron Saunders was definitely frustrated at that time. Would, would he have been right to go? Because of what he'd achieved at Villa and the lack of transfer money the Villa board was giving him, whether he'd be right to go, I don't know. But I don't think anyone could have blamed him because United, obviously, a huge club 
with a, a huge transfer kitty, but it says a lot about his love for Villa that he didn't go. The old adage that you uh, strengthen, you know, when you're at the top, it's striking that both in the summer of 81 and more so in 82 when they'd won the European Cup, I think there's only one signing, Andy Blair, in mm. those two summers. And that will come back to bite Villa uh, in a big way, at least domestically during the season. The 81-82 league season gets off to such a strange start with a 1-0 home defeat to a newly promoted Notts County. And that really sets the tone for their league form that season, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, no offence to Andy Blair. He was, he was a useful player. He was mostly a, a squad player who'd come in when someone else was suspended or injured. He was a useful player. But when you're the champions of England, for, for Andy to be the only signing was quite symbolic of the lack of spending that uh, Saunders was able to do at that time. He certainly fueled his frustration that he felt that there was more money than ever coming into the club and he just wasn't seeing any of it to spend. I know that the fans would have expected, like, like I said, Brian Robson ended up going from West Brom to Man United. These were the kind of names fans would have been expecting the club to sign to. Once you're at the top of the uh, the league, you want to stay there. So that's certainly frustrated Ron. And the fact that, I mean, as we all know, Villa won the European Cup that season. The fact they came 11th in the league after winning it the year before, it's a huge disappointment for me as a supporter that, they wasn't able to at least show a bit more consistency, even coming in the top five or six. To come 11th um, was, was quite poor. Gordon Cowan said that um, there was no doubt the team subconsciously was focusing so much on the European Cup and doing well in that competition because it was their first time and it might be their only time. They certainly put all their eggs in that basket. But they also had a few injury problems that year that they didn't have when they won the league. They famously only used 14 players when they won the league. The year after, in the European Cup campaign, Ken McNaught was injured. Uh, Colin Gibson was injured. They had a few other issues as well. Did just using 14 players in 80-81, that seemed to have gone against Saunders then from that point on, that the board felt that he could continue to work those miracles? Probably. There's also some innuendos that the money was coming in and going to places it shouldn't have been as well. There was police investigations. Where that money ended up going is anyone's guess. But Ron certainly knew it wasn't coming to his transfer kitty. But you're quite right. The 14 players, they probably thought, well, you've won the league with this squad. Why can't you go and do it again? That shows a lack of football knowledge, doesn't it? Because the year later, when the squad was tested with a few more injuries, the backup just wasn't strong enough. There were some good kids coming through, like Mark Walters, uh, Tony Dorigo a year or two later, and Paul Birch. Nigel Spink was shortly to take over from Jimmy Rimmer. But that particular season, there wasn't any particular uh, bench strength to cope with injuries to three or four key players. And by now, the relationship with Ronald Bendel, which had been good, wasn't so good. And I take it that's down to the lack of funds being released for, for the team. Yeah, absolutely. When you look around, you know you're champions of England and other teams are signing bigger players than yours. Like you said, I've got boardroom records to show the arguments in the boardroom and uh, Ron Saunders was consistently asking for more money and not getting it. They would say, well, you need to raise money before we can buy anybody. And in the end, out of almost testing the board. He said, OK, then let's put Tony Morley and Gary Shaw up for sale, who was possibly their two greatest assets 
And uh, the board said, oh, no, we can't sell those two. They're our two best players. I was thinking more people like David Geddes or Brendan Ormsby, you know, these kind of more squad players. But I don't think for one minute Ron Saunders didn't want to sell Morley and Shaw. That was his way of, out of exasperation, well, if that's what I need to do to sign some players, then go and get me a couple of million for these, you know, for these two and I'll sign some more players. But I think within a week, he'd resigned over the uh, frustration of it all. It was clearly getting to him when he came out with that particular offer of Short and Morley. After resigning, why did Saunders choose to make an immediate return with Birmingham, of all teams, given how high his stock was at the time? There's a few reasons. Number one, he was very happy in the area. Although he was from Merseyside, his family was settled around that Solihull area. So he didn't really want to move too far away. I mean, Manchester, for instance, you mentioned, that job would have meant uh, moving two hours away up the M6. So Birmingham City meant that he could stay in an area he was happy, didn't have to uproot his family. Funnily enough, the board at Blues had been uh, courting Saunders for a year or two before that time. And he was never going to leave because he was doing great things at Villa. But when it became clear that he couldn't get on with the board and and they was not giving him any money and they put him in that position where he had to resign, all of a sudden the the option of Birmingham City seemed a bit more attractive, let's say. And I think the fans never turned on Ron for it because they knew that he just won the league and they knew he wouldn't have gone there unless he felt he forced into it. Not many people could actually go from Villa to Blues in a couple of weeks and not get any kind of vitriol in his direction, but Saunders managed it. He wouldn't really have wanted to go there. Um, He wanted to finish his managerial career at Villa Park, but because he'd been put in that, what he'd probably call an untenable position where he couldn't do his management to the best of his ability, he felt like it was the right move. Villa fans direct their anger at the board, but also at uh, Saunders' successor, Tony Barton. Why did Tony Barton get that grief from the fans? A typical football fan fury, when things aren't going well, you've got to aim your um, angst at somebody and the board caught most of it. But the fact Ron Saunders wasn't there, I think there was just a lot of frustration going on. They wasn't doing very well in the league. The fact they were still in the European Cup retained some level of uh, restraint in their criticism. But Tony Barton was a, was a very unlucky for that. He, he took on the job, didn't expect to take it. I know it came as a shock for him when Ron Saunders resigned. But um, I think the fans came to like Tony Barton in time. It was just that initial anger that had allowed the, possibly the best manager in Villa's history to escape to their local rivals and typical football fans that don't always direct their anger in the right direction. You said earlier in the interview that, uh, I think it was Tony Morley, told you that Barton didn't receive enough credit for Villa winning the European Cup. Had Villa's league form been better? Because I, I, I guess you look at the European Cup success, you're thinking, well, Tony Barton was very clever in that he didn't really tamper with the team. Had there been something to play for in the league, might that have been a, a different case? Because clearly, domestically, there was a problem with that team. I think the biggest problem was you can't say it was Tony Barton's fault, but he was just a totally different character to Ron Saunders. Probably not allowed to swear on this interview, but Ron Saunders would often barrack the players, let's say, when they wasn't doing their jobs. They had his boot firmly up their backside, whereas I'm not saying Tony Barton was a pushover or soft, but 
He just didn't get on the players' cases in the same aggressive way as Saunders did. And I think when standards dropped subconsciously, because they were a very professional outfit, but when standards dropped, Barton wasn't really the manager who was able to bring it back to the standard where they were a year a year before. So I think that was the main difference. They were just totally different characters. But I don't think it should be underestimated what he did in that uh, team as far as the European Cup goes, because when you just get a, a new job as the manager, even if you've been the assistant, you feel this temptation to write, I've got to put my own signature on this job now, so I'm going to drop him and play him there. And you feel like you've got to tweak something. But he knew... They've just won the league. This team is like a well-oiled machine that doesn't need my tampering. So I think we should give him a lot of credit for leaving well alone, really. But he did lack that harder side when players needed telling. November 82, Bendel sells to Ellis. Ellis returns as chairman. Now, your book does give Doug Ellis a fair hearing. That argument that Villa fans and former players have often used against Ellis, that he felt threatened by Villa's successes of the early 80s while he was away... Can that be shot down in any way? Well, there's two debates. One is, I think he was threatened and certainly jealous of it because he was he loved the club. Whatever anyone says about Doug Ellis, you can't deny he loved the club. He loved being involved with it. Maybe he loved the power and you know the egotistical side of it. It all played up to his liking. He loved being ahead of Aston Villa. So to be away for three years when Villa won the European Cup and the league before it, he hated that. And he didn't want the photos around the club out for the time he was chairman. I don't think anyone can deny that, really. The one debate that I find a bit more in Doug's favour is um, pretty much every player from that team blames it on Doug, the demise, that is. I do think Doug has a lot to answer for in that he didn't replace quality players with further quality. But I think the loss of Ron Saunders was probably more to blame for the decline than, than the. Uh, incoming chairman and you take the example that um, Kenny Swain left he left to Forest on loan initially but that was before Doug Ellis had even brought back into Villa Des Bremner left in 84 that's two years after they'd won the European Cup Gary Shaw didn't leave till 88 admittedly had terrible injury problems but he had a lot of bad luck Colin Gibson left three years after to Man United Withy left and Mortimer left in 85 three years after so what I'm trying to get at is that Alan Evans left, I think, in 88 or 89. So a lot of these players were still around at the club for at least three years after the European Cup, but the league positions were not particularly high. The one sale that I felt was unforgivable was Tony Morley. He was possibly the best player in Europe when they won the European Cup in 82. So to pretty much give him away to West Brom a year later, that was a real strange one, and I don't know anyone can can uh, explain that. Like I said, I wanted us to, to keep this debate quite balanced. Yes, Doug was definitely culpable in not bringing in more quality in those early to mid-80s, of replenishing that quality. But you can't blame him for all these players going because they didn't go as early as some fans seem to think, and uh, some players were coming to the end of their careers too. 83-84 is a, a better season. I mean, you've got the arrival of McMahon, who proves to be a, a brilliant signing, albeit a short-term signing. There are two blows, though. Gordon Cowns breaks his leg on a pre-season tour in Spain. And then, as you just touched on there, uh, four games into the new season, Gary Shaw is injured in a freak accident. 
and he's still only 22 at this point, there's a strong argument for saying he should have gone to the 82 World Cup. You look at footage of Gary Shaw online and you wonder what that guy could have done in today's game. I mean, you look at, say, Brian Little in the 70s, but Gary Shaw was a hell of a player. And it's no surprise that I think he was named Europe's best uh, young player at some point in the early 80s, if I'm right. Yeah. It was a it was a freak accident, wasn't it, against Forrest that set back his career? He he felt a clicking in his knee. It wasn't like um a snapping of ligaments or anything like that. It wasn't anything obvious, but Ian Boyer came to pick him up and as he picked him up he felt something go in the knee and he did come back and score goals, but on a consistent basis he was never the same player again. It's a great shame, really. I mean, even Steve McMahon told me that uh, the, the two losses of Gary Shaw and Gordon Carrens just can't be overestimated because probably fans from other clubs would say I'm going overboard here, but they were two of the best players in the world at that time. You, you can justify that because they've just been champions of Europe. I definitely think both of them should have gone to the 1982 World Cup. That was a travesty that only Peter With was part of that England squad in 82 in Spain. Sure, it was it was quality. It was like um, whether you want to say like a Bergkamp Van Basten. He had that knew, knew where the goal was, but he had that uh, could bring players in. Pass had a great touch. wasn't the quickest, but his brain was the quickest. You know, you, you could see a pass. So he was a huge blow. And uh, and Gordon Cairns, his broken leg as well on that pre-season match in, in Spain. That was a that was a huge blow too. So. That wouldn't have helped Villa's gradual decline there either. But like I said before, Doug Ellis just he didn't react to bringing in other players at that time. Paul Ryder did a decent job for Villa though, but they soon sold him again after a couple of years. You mentioned Steve McMahon. He's probably one of the best midfield players I've seen at Villa in all my years. It was a really tough midfield general who I guess we all hoped would be the eventual replacement for Dennis Mortimer. But sadly, he was soon off to Liverpool. Tony Barton's gone in the summer of 84. Graham Turner comes in, despite, I think, some big names being linked with the job. Did Ellis go for Turner because it gave him greater control over an inexperienced manager? And if so, why did he have these sort of dances with these experienced managers before going for Turner? That was an easy conclusion to draw, that when you've been European champions two years ago, and then you recruit a 36-year-old player manager from Shrewsbury. It seems a ridiculous scenario, really. It certainly wasn't his first choice. He was something like seventh choice, Graham Turner. Although he was a talented young manager doing actually, it sounds sounds a, a bigger transition now because of where Shrewsbury are now. I think they were in the second tier at the time and he was doing quite a good job on a, a shoestring. So he was. I'm not trying to denigrate him at all. He was a good, talented young manager, but to be at that stage and then go to Aston Villa as, as manager, that was a real strange decision. But yes, it, it wasn't his first choice. People like Laurie McMenemy, David Pleat, Gordon Lee, John Toshak, I think even Big Ron was sounded out, who didn't want to leave Man United at that stage. So there were a few people who, um, Keith Birkinshaw, I think was another one who was sounded out. So there was quite a few experienced managers who were, I'm not saying they were all offered the job, but they were certainly sounded out. But 
the fact that David Pleat's example springs to mind. He said that he went to see Doug Ellis in hospital and that was when Doug offered him the job while he was Luton manager, doing quite well at Luton. And he said Tony Barton was a friend of his and he was offering him the job while Tony Barton was still in the job and he just didn't like the manner of the job offer and felt that that was the way the chairman operated. I don't think I want to be working for this guy. So, again, that says a lot about the character that Doug Ellis was. But, yeah, Turner certainly wasn't his first choice. There are more departures in 85. I think you touched on Rideout earlier. Cowans goes with Rideout to Bari. Returns of several old players, Andy Gray, Steve Hunt, Andy Blair. Uh, they lose McMahon to Liverpool for a ridiculously low fee of 375000 And Steve Hodge had just arrived from Forest the week before and is surprised that they've sold McMahon. Mm. There's, a, there's a passage in your book which, is, which tells you how maybe other managers viewed Villa at the time because we learned that United had actually wanted Steve Hodge, but Forest boss Brian Clough didn't want to strengthen rivals, but was happy to sell to Villa, who'd actually just won the European Cup three years earlier. That does tell us a lot about how Villa were now perceived by other clubs. Yeah, quite a telling observation, really. It was a frustrating time because, obviously, that there had to be um, a gradual turnover of that squad that was European Cup. Some would argue it was too fast and it's probably correct. But Turner actually made some some good signings and uh, and Barton before him. I mean, Barton signed McMahon, a fantastic midfielder, as I've said. So when Turner brought in Steve Hodge, to many Villa fans, that sounded like a perfect combination in midfield, having lost Sid Carrens and uh, Dennis Morton, who was on his way out. But within a week or two, McMahon left. And that was kind of symbolic of Villa at that time. It would be one in and one out rather than continual building quality. Andy Gray, Villa fans might say, oh, he was too old, we shouldn't have re-signed him, but he just had a great year at Everton the season before. You can't say he was finished. I think he went and did a decent job at Rangers after that, after Villa as well. I think it said more about where uh, Villa were at at the time, gradual decline. That Steve Hunt signing was actually shouldn't be undervalued because I'm pretty sure they would have been relegated a season early if it wasn't for those two signings of Andy Blair and Steve Hunt in the March transfer deadline window. So um, Steve Hunt did a a really great job until he got injured. Some of the signings were really good by Graham Turner, Martin Keown, really good defender. He was young at the time, something like 20. Paul Elliott did a good job. Mark Walters and Tony Dorigo had come through the youth, really good players. So it was frustrating in one way that there was a nucleus of good players, but there wasn't that added quality along with them. There were players coming from the reserves who were never good enough. That's the main issue, really. The, the strength and depth wasn't there. Just a couple of points. One thing in your book, you mentioned that United and Liverpool at the time were sponsored by Hitachi and Sharp. And Villa, I think, had, was it Mitre Copiers? Davenport to Brewery. Okay. So there was a there was a European champion. That's not that's not a great sponsor. You would say that Davenport were quite fortunate to to land that deal, and that brings me to and I don't know if anything can be read into this, but the start of the eighty five season. I don't know if you can read too much into a football strip, but Villa's new kit, Henson. I think it was only Bournemouth at the time were the only other club with a Henson strip. Does that tell us anything about where Villa were at the time? commercially 
Probably. Um, their commercial department certainly didn't have much foresight. And even from the boardroom records, I was able to glean that there was a commercial manager that, let's just say, to put it politely, got eased out of the club. Clearly wasn't doing a good job. I mean, when you're in the when you're European champion, I'm going back from that Henson day that you're talking about, but in 82, when you're European champions and you're in the final of the one-off match of the World Club Championship in Tokyo, which is where so many big sponsors were in those days, the Japanese technology companies, if you had a bit of know-how on your commercial department you'd, you'd go out there and think right we're european champions we're going to go and do a massive shirt deal now or a club sponsorship deal with um, one of these japanese tech companies and that didn't happen like you say to come back with a local brewery like davenport's and and these lowly kit manufacturers i think it definitely did show that villa wasn't able to embrace that status of being kings of europe Okay, it never lasted long, but still it was great for their reputation. A year or two after, could still have been exploited, but it never was. Turner is sacked early in 86, 87. Uh, Keith Birkinshaw turns down another approach from Ellis at this time. And this is the point at which Billy McNeil ends up moving from Manchester City to take over. Now, for me, Manchester City and Villa have always been two big clubs at that particular time. Neither side are pulling up any trees. But it's a strange move for both Villa and McNeil, isn't it? McNeil should really have known Villa was not the um, the team of 82 by that stage because they're in that lowly position around the relegation zone. So it was a strange move in that sense. Also, his family was happy in Manchester because that was one of the frustrations of the people at Villa when he did move. There was a feeling that he couldn't wait to finish training so he could get back on the M6 back home to Manchester where his family was still based. So he knew pretty quickly as soon as he came to Villa. I think he didn't like Doug Ellis's meddling. And he, he was a chairman that liked to be hands-on. Who do you want to sign? Who do you want to sell? Who's playing up in the dressing room? Doug wanted to know everything about the club, about the team. McNeil didn't like that. And he knew pretty quickly that uh, it was a huge mistake he'd made. But Villa and the club and the fans really were the uh, the victims and all that because his heart wasn't in it. The players ridiculed him. What a ridiculous team talks he gave. In fact, they gave him a nickname of Billy McBingo. He was so simple with his team talks. Almost, I think Warren Aspinall said he came in with a Sabutio board one day or something like that and said that you go down the line, you pass to him and bingo, we score. You know, it was something a kid at primary school could come out with and they would all start sniggering and I think they had like sweeps. How many times are you going to say bingo in this team talk? And so it wasn't a great time for the for the club at that stage, for their manager, you know, having the mickey taken out of them by the players behind his back. And that all changed the year after then when Graham Taylor came in. So McNeil doesn't last the season. Villa are relegated. Just before we come to Graham Taylor's arrival, did Villa need to be relegated for that decline to be arrested? Was that the only way Villa were going to get out of this? I'd like to say no. The squad was bad, but I don't think the team was bad. If you reel off some names there, like Nigel Spink in goal, still very good keeper. Alan Evans, still a decent defender. Tony Dorigo, I thought, was a hugely underrated left-back. Ended up winning the league at Leeds, being player of the year at Chelsea. Great left-back. Gary Williams, the European Cup winning right-back, was still there. Steve Hunt, good midfielder. Uh, Mark Walters, excellent winger. 
you got Andy Gray, who was league champion at Everton the year before. So there's a few other players I would have missed. Gary Thompson did a good job when he came. That team was good enough to hold its own in that league, even a kind of a mid-table team. But there's too many, too many things wrong with the mentality of the players, mentality in the board. Training wasn't good. It was just rotten to the core in the end, but it wasn't because of the team needed to be relegated to be broken up and come back with a fresh kind of squad. I think the team was good enough, but it just needed a, a massive change in mentality and attitude, which is what Graham Taylor gave them. The likes of Kevin Gage, Stuart Gray, Alan McAnally arrived. David Platt turns out to be a brilliant signing halfway through the following season. Taylor gets Villa back up at the first attempt. One thing I noticed in Ticket to the Moon is that after the Barton and Turner sackings, Ellis interviewed big names and emerging uh, names for the job. Atkinson, Birkinshaw, David Pleat, but never Graham Taylor, whose stock was so high through the 80s. So that's something of a surprise to me because it's clear from your book that Taylor knew how to stop Ellis from interfering in team matters. Yeah, that's right. Taylor was one guy strong enough to stand up to Doug. Let's face it, Graham Turner was never going to, being the young age he was. Though, to be fair to Turner, he did recommend some good players to sign, like Terry Butcher and Alan Smith, but Doug just had his way. But when Graham Taylor came in, he was able to, because he had all those promotions at Watford, a cup final, did really well. He was able to, to say to Doug, these are the players I want. These are the players I want out. Um, it was very forthright. It wasn't like um wasn't like a debate with the chairman. It was almost like a directive. I need you to sell these players and I need you to buy these players. Even the squad tells stories of the first few training sessions with Graham Taylor. They've never known organisation like it. I said whether you like his football or his philosophy of football, whether you like that or not, one thing you can't deny is you knew what he wanted from you. You knew your job. His organisation was massive. Uh, even his assistant, Steve Harrison, Alan Evans, said he learned more from Steve Harrison than he'd ever learned in his career. So it was just a huge sweeping change of positivity that Taylor brought with him and uh, that confidence of this is where we're going and this is how we're going to do it. There was just no indecision or uh, doubt. Final question in the forward to the book, Andy Gray. Perhaps if Villa had a star during that 20-year period, it was Andy Gray. Um, He posits the view that the players Villa eventually lost after Rotterdam shouldn't have been irreplaceable and seems to think it was a case of Villa overachieving in the first place. Do you go along with that? It's a tough one because if Shaw and Cairns didn't get injured, if Ken McNaught had stayed fit, he had a bad calf problem. If Jimmy Rimmer hadn't have been sold until a year later, you know, if they'd have had another couple of years at that team, then maybe we, we would know that for sure. But because it got changed fairly quickly in mean, the Tony Morley sale, that was ridiculous. I, I do think they actually overachieved purely because they were seventh the year before. I think if you were um, putting the, the tips to win the league in that 80-81 season, if you, if you asked most football fans or pundits that season, Who's going to be the big five to win the league? You'd say Liverpool. You'd say Arsenal. They've just come through uh, three cup finals. Man United always there. Tottenham would be there with the two Argentinians and Hoddle and Crooks and Archibald. Even Wolves finished the place above Villa the year before. So to say they 
didn't overachieve, I think is hard to justify. So I think they overachieved, but I'm not saying they were lucky because you can't be lucky. They played fantastic football when they won the league. But I think the fact they came 11th the season after showed that they did have a remarkable season that was, I wouldn't want to call it a blip, but it was maybe something you wouldn't have expected. Appreciate your time, Richard. Uh, Tell us where people can find your work and where they can find you on social media. The book is published by Ducoubertin. So the book can be bought from the publisher also on Amazon too, but I'm not sure if the publisher's still got some signed copies left that's worth looking into. I'll hopefully have a few more books in the pipeline over the next year or so, so uh, you can keep an eye on that on my Twitter, at Big Star Rich. Thank you to Richard Sydenham. A link to Ticket to the Moon published by Decoubertin Books will be posted in the show links along with Richard's Twitter details and Decoubertin are at decoubertin.co.uk. Just to let you know, the show after today is going on a short mid-season break. Mid-season in terms of it's only been around since Christmas, so this is my mid-season and it is an essential break. I'm taking what is likely to be most of March off from producing the show. If you've been with it since the start, you'll know it wasn't launched in the way I'd planned for it to be launched. I covered that on episode one. Six months of careful planning went out the window, just to recap, as the building managers here imposed internal works on all residents. I'd been resisting that work for months. It made no sense in a pandemic. And aside from those concerns, in terms of all the building work noise, it has severely restricted what times I can record interviews at. And here's the thing. It's still going on. It was meant to be done two months ago and the work is still going on. It's been going on now for six months. Some more of the scaffolding has only just come down this morning, but it's still up on the side of the building. And owing to some of the works inside the flat being botched up before Christmas, I also face the prospect of having the builders back for a day or two later this month. All of which has meant that aside from one brief period in the last 10 weeks where I was able to build up a batch of shows to fall back on and give me breathing space, I've not been able to do that. So I'm spending four to five days a week at the moment producing that week's show, which is not the way I wanted to work on this. It's not the way that I can work on this. It's just too much pressure. On top of that, if you're familiar with my regular long-running podcast, despite washing my hands some 50 times a day for the last 30 years, that damn virus took me out in late February, much to my surprise, really, I should add, and I had to continue working through that. Wasn't much fun, and though that's now over, I'm definitely contending at the moment with some after effects which I hope I can overcome sooner rather than later. So March for me is going to be about building up that batch of shows, catching up with a lot of reading, a lot of guests lined up since the autumn who I haven't got around to getting on the podcast yet because of that building work and hopefully these next three or four weeks will help me finally get this podcast on track as it's just an awful lot of work for one person. Also, this show is meant to cover a 40-year window from the mid-50s to early 90s, and owing to a couple of factors, I haven't quite got the show there yet. This isn't meant to be a show fixated on the 70s and 80s. I've seen a few tweets about that. The show's remit is broader than that. That's no challenge for me. I'm not interested in doing a, a podcast just on the 70s and 80s, and it's certainly not something that would keep me satisfied in terms of doing this long term. But there are a couple of factors which have so far prevented me from getting former players and managers from the 50s and 60s on so far. The first is technology. 
most of the guys that fall into that generation have so far not been enthused by the idea of zooming and personally I don't blame them. Zoom is a nightmare to edit. I'm a hostage to fortune every week with regards to a guest's audio and more often than not they don't have mics which is why it takes me days to edit and fix their audio and also fix my own audio and this means that I have to record those interviews via WhatsApp, which is their preferred way of doing the interviews. And WhatsApp and my mixer, combining the two, therein lies the problem. With an iPhone, I could do this without any problem, but my particular model of Android phone isn't easily compatible with the cables I've so far bought to get around this issue, and that's where things stand right now. I've tested an alternative way to record via WhatsApp with another podcaster and radio friend, and it works with him. But then when I test out that same technology with a friend with no connection to the audio world, it's not worked. So this remains a hurdle that I need to overcome, and financially I can't afford to make more speculative purchases, so I'm still dealing with that. And the second issue here, and this is one that I definitely never anticipated. This has caught me by surprise, really. I hadn't appreciated that many of these older guys, by their own admission, require a lot of prompting. Chunks of their career are now forgotten because of age, and I've got to work out a way that I can adapt to the challenge of that. With the pressure of launching the show, at least in the way that I managed to get it out at Christmas and getting the show out every Friday since then, I've not had the time and space to work out a way forward on that front. So I think this is what the government would call a roadmap, as in their roadmap for the way out of this pandemic nightmare. I, though, I'm going to call this a plan. This is my plan. I don't see why the government was so reluctant to run with plan, but this is my plan for the show. I need to monetize it, as I've said recently, which certainly in terms of downloads is a long way away because the downloads aren't great. And that's an issue because the cost of producing the show or the recurring costs of producing this show have been considerable and continue to be. The good news is that more big name players and managers of yesteryear continue to agree to come on after seeing the show is finally out there and listening to an episode or two. I've got brilliant and very patient writers lined up to guest on the show too. But also, I don't want to get hung up on having high-profile guests on all the time. I want to cover some of the less familiar stories from back in the day, if you'll excuse the Americanism. At the same time, in the episodes where I've gone down this route, the downloads have been poor, and I can't afford that in my situation. And also, the fact is that when I go off on a tangent and do, say, a Sabutio episode or a football comic episode, those guests are far better on social media and their episodes get higher downloads than the actual football guest episodes. It's simply because those Sabuccio and comic guests know the huge importance of social media and will retweet or better still go to the effort of actually tweeting about it. The average former footballer isn't that great with social media. Most of them don't even RT or share the episodes they've appeared on. So those episodes are essentially thrown away from my point of view and have done little to grow the show, which isn't great when I've spent so much time putting them together. So there's a lot of work ahead for me. I know that I can do it. But I also know that I can't do it without a few weeks out to just focus on collating those interviews and releasing much of this pressure this show leaves me under on a weekly basis. I do appreciate you guys listening and I cannot overstate, I know it's boring to hear every week, but I cannot overstate how important it is for this show to be rated and reviewed on Apple Podcasts. Both are needed. 
one without the other is pointless. Those ratings and reviews help the show gain a greater visibility. That will increase the audience. Please do subscribe too and sharing it on social media, tweeting about it, RTing it. It's all a massive help and shows me that there are listeners out there that care about this show enough to want it to continue. It's not going to cost more than five minutes of your time. And just do that if you can for any indie shows you might enjoy. I'm a one-man operation. There are a few of us around, and we're all in the same boat. We need your support on social media to survive. Most indie podcasts don't survive beyond 20 episodes. Now, given I've recorded almost a 1,000 podcasts and live radio shows since 2010, I know that I have to stay in power to know that that is not going to happen to this show. But equally, I know that I don't want this show to be like my other long-running podcast, which after 312 episodes remains not even a cult show. I don't want another below-the-radar podcast on my hands. If you have listened to the end of this episode, I appreciate you doing so, and I hope that you and your loved ones continue to keep safe during what has been a dreadful time for all of us. The podcast can be followed on both Twitter and Instagram at Shorts with Short and Facebook.com forward slash Shorts with Short. If you want to join the group page, please do. If you want to drop the podcast an email ahead of its return, you can get me at Shorts with Short at 1607westegg.com. All my work is at DanielRuizTizen.com. Thank you for your time. The artwork is by Tom Hadfield. The music is 80 synth pop by Toto Cyberspace. I've been Daniel Ruiz Tyson. I'll be back soon. This has been When Shorts Were Short. If the shorts weren't short, we don't talk about it. Mm-hmm.